0: Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of the Environmental Protection Information Center. And a very special thanks to our sponsor, Humboldt Distillery. You can find their delicious local organic distilled spirits at your local grocer. And for each bottle of their organic vodka that you purchase, a dollar goes to the California Coast Keeper Alliance, so you can feel good while you buy your booze. And I am joined by a, a ton of my colleagues and friends First off, Scott Greason, friends of the Eel River. Hey, Scott. Well, hey, Tom. Alicia Heyman, uh, friends of the Eel River. Hey, Alicia.
1: Hey, Tom.
0: Matt Simmons from Epic. Hey, Matt. Hey, Tom. And the lovely Jen Savage from California Surfrider.
1: Hey, Tom. All
0: right. So uh, today's show. Wait, wait, wait. I'm I'm feeling like unappreciated here. I think I called you great or something, and and let's be real. Jen is the only one. No, Alicia too, who is lovely among us.
2: Aww.
0: You, me, and Matt are are sewer rats. We are we are you we are not anything nice. Last
2: week.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I did call you handsome last week. Although I think that that was in the chat function, so no one has proof of it.
2: No, it was live.
0: T- today we are talking about the thirty by thirty movement. This is something that maybe you've heard of. Maybe we're going to introduce you to for the first time and examine the differences between the federal and state movements. Why I I think all of us here on this call are are maybe a little skeptical about the intent behind this or or the potential outcomes. So uh, fun show, fun set of guests. Let's get into it. Scott, I, I think that you wanted to start off, instead of kind of defining what 30 by 30 is, by talking about why we are talking about this 30 by 30 movement, which is to conserve 30% of the land in some sort of permanent protection by 2030.
2: Yeah. So the idea for the the so-called 30 by 30 framework, which is to protect 30% of the globe's land and oceans by 2030 starts from a thing called the convention on biological diversity, which is a part of the United Nations environmental program, but it's a, an international agreement between hundreds of different nations. And it's a, an agreement about how we're going to collectively move forward to try to protect life on earth, really. But the idea underlying that is that to protect biological diversity, which I think we should talk about for a second, we need to protect big landscapes. We need to protect natural processes, and I, I thought maybe we could start by just brainstorming some of the local and regional reasons that we need to do this, which is to say, let's do name some endangered species. <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah, well, absolutely. So we have the iconic species of the Timber Wars, the northern spotted owl and marble murrelet. And then we've been trying to add yeah, one at a time, one at a time. Northern spotted owl, one. Marble murrelet too. And we've been trying to get some other ones listed that we could cripple the timber industry with. Bubble them up. Pacific Fisher, Humboldt
2: Martin. No, everybody.
3: Let, let's talk about Stop salmon. Stop it. I I they're, like, not, yeah. they're not quite listed yet, but the Northern California Summer Steelhead. Eh? Eh?
2: Yeah.
0: Scott, I'm waiting for you to bubble. Yellow-legged frog. Humboldt Martin. I think we
3: said Humboldt Martin. Tom said no, all do. my all the ones I, I look with all the time. California Condor. Cascades Frog. Well, so this is not just
0: endangered species, too. We also have some charismatic megafauna that aren't endangered, that are super reliant on large, well-protected landscapes. Gray whales, Roosevelt elk, mountain lions, black bears.
2: (laughs) The, The point is that we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction in the history of the planet. And unlike all of the others, this one is happening because we made it happen. And because we are letting it happen, it's human activity that's driving most of the species on Earth toward extinction. And to stop that and to provide future generations of humans and other species the opportunity to live in an ecosystem that still functions, we need to reverse that trend. And to reverse that trend and really provide a basis for sustainable human culture and civilization we need to protect, science tells us, large landscapes and, like I said, a, the the opportunity for natural processes like fires, like hydrology, like evolution. So that's the idea behind 30 by 30 writ large, which, as I said, starts with the UN, but has now come from the federal government as well as a proposal from the Biden administration and from the News administration at the state level. So.
0: And did we specify for our listeners who aren't totally familiar with this what 30 by 30 means? Protecting
1: 30% of the land and ocean by 2030?
2: Thanks for repeating. Yeah.
0: But the devil's in the details, right? And so this is what we're, what a lot of the show is going to get into. What does what protecting mean?
2: Exactly. And, and protecting is the question. So the basic idea is protecting biological diversity, but. The version that we're hearing from the Newsom administration is to protect biological diversity and prevent climate change and provide access to recreational opportunities. So there's actually three things going on there, not one. I think we should talk a little bit about mashing those three things together because it's really important to do the first thing, protect biological diversity. That's something we've all been focused on a lot. But we also understand that to protect biological diversity, to protect habitat means we've got to address climate change. And obviously there's some ways in which protecting habitat can help us address climate change.
0: Yeah, well, it, but we also have potentially conflicting values here. So, Right, I but th- what's
3: the, how does it help? I think what you're yeah. getting at, that, you know, a lot of habitat, like, so for example, the northern spotted owl relies on old growth trees, right? And old growth trees sequester a lot of carbon, which is necessary for climate change. And so you can accomplish both of those goals by protecting old growth forests from timber harvest. And you check off the climate box and the biodiversity box with the same action. Exactly. But
2: if we provide recreational access on ATVs to those old growth groves, (laughs) we may be achieving carbon sequestration, but that's not actually functional habitat for northern spotted owls. So there's potential conflicts, at least.
1: Right, but not all, I mean, there's different, not all types of access are appropriate for all places. There's a huge difference between opening something up to motorized vehicles versus having people walking through it. I, and, right,
2: I was trying a, yeah. a stark contrast there, you know. Right. I know the science on that one, but <laughs> yeah. But there yeah. are a lot of places where just having access to places where biodiversity is protected is fine if you spend the money.
1: I think in our North Coast mindset that we're not necessarily looking at areas like when when I think about what the Newsom administration and the resources agency mean when they're talking about access equity it is more like urban greening, like green spaces in cities, you know, people who don't have, who live in urban areas where that are really park poor. Mm-hmm. And so how can how can they establish, create, protect these spaces in urban areas as well that would have a, not just be like, oh cool, there's a park, people can go throw a Frisbee around, but could be like meaningful places for biodiversity you know, probably not big enough to really have a climate change impact, but, but, you know, I mean, biodiversity thrives in urban areas in a lot of ways, in a lot of places. So are there ways that it can be made? Don't look at me like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Scott, turn off your camera.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like if you look at San Francisco, for example, right, there's they have like something on average of like a, a park in every half square mile or something crazy. And that is meaningful at some point. Is it the answer to the things we're talking about? No, but the access equity piece, I think is more in that direction than like we need to protect nature and also open it up to more and more activity.
2: Yeah, point taken, but creating and maintaining urban parks does, as you said, almost nothing for climate change. And I would submit very, very little for biodiversity. And it's not large landscape protection that allows natural processes to continue. It just isn't.
0: Well, okay, I'm I'm going to come to Jen's defense here on parks as an important means to mitigate the impacts of climate change. So parks and green space are going to reduce temperature in that urban asphalt environment, right? So street trees are, are incredibly important to, to reduce total temperature.
2: Yeah, and and none of this comes with any funding. So, how are we going to get there? But
0: sure, sure, sure. Well, so we we have this great vision, right, which is something that all of us the idea of protecting 30% by 2030, it it's a wonderful idea. We we would probably go higher. EO Wilson calls for 50% of the earth to be set aside for non-human uses. That that doesn't even seem like enough to me. But the the question that we are all struggling with is what does the 30% look like. So one thing I'm concerned with is that we already have over thirty percent of California in some sort of state or federal ownership. If we just look at at federal ownership through Forest Service Lands or National Park Lands, I think that we're over thirty percent within the state of California. So like one 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 thing we can do is do is Clap our hands together and and call it good and pat ourselves on the back and, and say that we were successful. I, I don't think that that is particularly what the Newsom administration means because why would you, why would you use that number thirty percent?
2: That's what the UN's using and that's what the fed, federal government is using. But the, the it's really important to note that this is not just about public lands. It's about public and private lands, and I I think it's important to underscore that this is not just the Newsom administration that's, you know, missing the boat on this. We got a report, finally, from the Department of Agriculture, from the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, about what they think this means. And this is really important because the Department of Agriculture is not just about farming. It's also the agency in charge of the Forest Service, of course. And Secretary Vilsack says, quote, This commitment about private lands and private conservation includes a clear recognition that maintaining ranching in the West on both public lands and private lands is essential to maintaining the health of wildlife, the prosperity of local economies, and an important and proud way of life. Yeah, right. That is just garbage.
0: Well, well, that's
2: nonsense. That is. Absolutely backwards. Well, so let, let's back up because when
0: when I think that when we're talking about what we envision as 30%, I think that we're envisioning something more along the lines of a wilderness area, right? Which we're talking about biodiversity protection. Right. But, but – in, in terms of protection, land protection, I think that when, when we use the term 30 by 30, what I what I envision is like a wilderness area where it's... Without cows. Let's let nature do
2: its thing. Yeah, without cows, right? Well, the point is that wilderness areas have cows in them. We're trying to get them out. Sure, 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 sure. sure. And the reason we're trying to get them out is for biodiversity. And we've been trying for 40 years. Right no no and
0: this is yes you are 100% right and and we want to get the cows out but i i think what i'm trying to say is that the the idea for our organizations it is to have big spaces where where nature does its thing, where you can have fires right. without cows, without being trammeled by man or whatever the language is from the Wilderness Act. I think that that's what we think of when we think of 30 by 30, is set-asides, right? Humans are over here. Humans are not in these other spaces. I disagree. You don't – You don't. how do you envision 30 by 30, Scott? What does what is, what is protected mean for you?
2: That's close, but – Science has established four protected areas say that Category 1 lands, like you're describing, where basically natural processes can really prevail, are really important, and we really need those. And as you pointed out, like almost none of America's public lands are actually in that status. But Gap 2 lands like lands that are mostly protected but don't necessarily have the full range of natural processes, are also important. That's our public lands, but it's also a lot of private lands. And, you know, you look at places like the Collins Pines lands in the Northern Sierras, there's a high level of naturalness, a lot of habitat on those lands. There's certainly places where there's a lot of biodiversity on private lands, but... (laughs) Should we give them money or should we require them to maintain more biodiversity? That's really the underlying question here.
0: This is the Eco News Report, and we're talking about the 30 by 30 movement, trying to protect 30% of our lands by the year 2030. So, Jen, from Surfrider's surf position, what, what are you hoping to come out of this 30 by 30 process? Or what, or what is your idea of what protected means un, under the the state or federal rubric?
1: Well, you know, focusing on the ocean and the coast, because that's that's the world that Surfrider operates in. You know, we're looking really at global marine protected areas. And I know there's issues in California right now where there's already a lot of pushback against 30 by 30 in the ocean side, because people, primarily fishermen Are concerned that we're just going to like magically double the number of MPAs in California State waters. So most of your listeners probably know that California has a network of marine protected areas. It's the only one in the nation. And it was a a long, arduous process that was driven by science and stakeholders and ultimately achieved protecting, like meaningful protection of 16% of our coastal waters. So, the, so sure, and like on, on one hand, you'd be like, let's just double them. But of course, there's all kinds of economic and social and political calculations that go into the mix, right? So federally and globally, we would like to see more better marine protected areas. I mean, that's what we're going to have to do, that we have to take the pressure off of our ocean, give it a chance to heal. You know, when marine protected areas are put into place, fish come back, habitats bounce back they're helpful with climate change resiliency they do all the things if you do them right here in our in our again in our california state waters the 30 by 30 movement is a bit complicated by the fact that it's complicated but also by the fact that the marine protected area network just reached 10 years and so they're doing a 10 year review a, science, a comprehensive scientific review of the MPA network so they're not really making any moves on the 30 by 30 front in the state waters until we get the results of that so they can make more informed decisions. You know, the big answer is for the ocean 30 by 30 means more meaningful marine protected areas here in California. We're going to see how our MPA network is doing and build from there. So in an
0: MPA in a marine protected area, are, are there categories of activities that are off limits?
1: Yeah. Fishing generally. See, it's like levels of take. We call it take when you, when you kill things, so it primarily means that you can't fish, and if it 's a marine reserve, you can't fish, you can 't harvest seaweed, like you can 't take anything out of the ocean that 's living and some of them have different levels of protection where you can perhaps fish for some kinds of some kinds of fish, but not all kinds so species that are not likely to benefit from a marine protected area, like a highly mobile species that's going to be passing through it anyway. But you, but you won't be allowed to catch like rockfish, for example, because they hang out in like one place for a long time. And if you fish those fish out of there, they don't come back. So there, there's different levels, but it's, it's all supposed to be, ideally, it's been done in a way that when we call this place protected, it really and truly is in a way that the habitat is protected, the habitat comes back, the fish populations build. And all the early studies suggest that it's working. But to Scott's point earlier, you can call something protected, you can say something is set aside, but if it's not done with, in a meaningful scientific way, with adequate funding for enforcement, then you're still screwed.
0: Right. So so your vision from the ocean sounds like relatively similar to Scott and my visions of of what this looks like on land, which is... Basically, it is areas for for nature to do its thing, where humans play a, a smaller or or almost non-existent role, or or as little of a role as we can within the ecosystem. So, I, I want to use that to then pivot to how the Newsom administration, in particular, is talking about some of their priorities for these thirty by thirty areas, and and this, I think. Envisions a a far more active interventionist role by by humanity in, into managing these lands. One of the things that that has come up a lot is, well, well, don't worry. If we're going to do thirty by thirty, it doesn't mean that we're not going to go in there and, and try to reduce fire risk. That's what we want to do, and it, or or we we are we are going to we are going to really capitalize on on some of the resource values that we find in these lands. And we're going to use nature-based solutions to climate change, which the thing that really, really worries me is that this just becomes a way that we will end up paying the timber industry to log their lands and to put that embedded carbon that is in a standing tree in a forest and to put it into two by four and then call that good and call that carbon sequestration, because that two by four is going to be in a house for the next 60 to 100 years. And therefore, it's sequestered in some, some form outside of the forest.
2: It's a very sophisticated, high level greenwashing, honestly. Is, is that what's happening here? Yeah, this is taking the status quo and putting a really nice coat of flocked paint on it that makes it look huggable and green. And the problem is it's that the status quo is completely unsustainable. We have to turn around. And like to take your example, the timber industry. Yes, we can continue to pay the industry a premium over and above what they're legally allowed to do to protect their trees a little longer, sequester a little longer, which is what we're doing right now, or we can require them to maintain their lands in an old growth condition if they want to continue to operate as timber operators. And we can achieve real benefits, but it's going to come at a cost. The industry is going to hate it. And that's the thing. It's like, we have real choices here, but we can't continue to pretend that it's win, 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 win. And, And that's the big problem I have with mashing together these ideas. It's not that we don't want to provide equitable, access to natural spaces of course we do we want to provide more access to the people on the north coast who already have more but it's critical that we face the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis and to to pretend that the status quo is going to do that is just criminal so
0: i will give then perhaps the the counter argument that could be put forward as a way that this could be a, a way that human intervention can help assist in nature-based solutions. Let, let, let's, let's fully use their language, which is something like the Redwoods Rising program on state parks. Redwoods Rising is a collaborative movement between Save the Redwoods League, state parks, national parks, every resource management agency, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Marine Fishery Service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what they are hoping to do is go into areas that have been really degraded. Areas that were logged super heavily in the 1960s and 1970s to try to prevent them from being added to Redwood National Park, because if you have this like super cut over, awful landscape, maybe the feds won't want to put into a park status. And they're going to go back into these areas that now have a uniform crown because it's just a plantation and a super thick stem density, you know, way too many trees per acre. And they're going to take out a little bit. And by taking out a little bit, they can move the species composition to a better, more natural species composition. They can reduce the the stem density and and open it up a little bit, which can be beneficial. So there there is a way that we could do this well and we could do this correctly. I'm just afraid that once we start attaching money to this, once if 30 by 30 gets state funding, then then the, the corrupting influence of money is going to make it that everything becomes a nature-based solution and we're not actually doing the good work.
3: Matt? I just wanted to, one, I appreciate what you just said, Tom. And then two, I wanted to add in another wrinkle, which is that when Europeans showed up to the Americas, the land wasn't unmanaged, right? It wasn't pure non-human activity going on. And so, I think in these conversations, it's important to remember that indigenous peoples have been managing the land for eons and that they were able to do it without causing a biodiversity crisis. And so there there's like theoretically room for human activity and, and management. It just has to be done differently than we currently do it. And that looking to the past in that way, I think, is a is a good idea because we have examples of how this used to be done.
0: So just, yeah, not white settler colonial management. Jen
1: that was a great point, Matt. And just as a point of an additional point of interest of, you know, the, of the biodiversity that's left in the world, like the, the, the areas where biodiversity is actually thriving, 80% of that is in land that's managed by indigenous people. So it's not just a thing of the past. I mean, it's really like, that's, that is what is working.
2: We haven't got there yet. That's why. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So there is an ability for the, the public to participate in in what this 30 by 30 is going to become. So it is not a fixed thing yet. And, and so I, I think that you've heard throughout this conversation, a lot of our anxiety about what it might become. But there is a, an opportunity to participate in it. And I think that the more participation that we have, and the more participation by folks like us, probably like you, our listener, that that want to have a, a good outcome that this is going to force better conservation decisions rather than just pay the same old, the same old people money to do the same old things that they have been doing. There, there's a, a process to influence this. So, Jen, I, I know that you've been tracking what's been going on at the state level, and there, there are a series of workshops and there's a survey. Can you talk about what the state is doing?
1: Yeah, sure. So the, the effort here in California is being led by the California Natural Resources Agency. And they have a biodiversity division within the agency. And so with the, the Office of Biodiversity and the Ocean Protection Council together are working on how do we get 30% of California's land and waters protected by 2030. As I said, this, the state water stuff is a, little, is a whole thing unto itself. But the land area in particular, the resources agency is currently holding a series of workshops, getting stakeholder feedback. So, so far, it's been very kind of big picture, kind of loose situation. But people have a number of different ways to provide input. Um, I'm sure like you could put that in your in your show notes, the links in your show notes.
0: You'll find them there.
1: Yes. And in the way that California is doing it it is through the stakeholder engagement process and working to produce a report by February of next year that will outline a path to 30 by 30 based on the the state's own scientific research and these efforts to talk with local communities. And then so that will be like the plan. And Mm. then it will be a question of how do we attain these goals? Matt? Yeah.
3: So I I took this, one of these surveys and, you know, a lot of what it is is trying to define what conservation means to Californians. And I think Scott brought up that for some people like grazing on, on land is, is conservation. Right. And I'm, I'm worried that these surveys will be, will overrepresent those sorts of interests. And so that's, I'm I'm trying to pitch to our listeners, go on to the survey and and tell them that you want management for biodiversity and, and places to be set aside and that sort of thing. And that way, at least we'll be telling them what we want, right? And then we can see if they ignore us or not. But you have to you have to do the first
1: step. Yeah, and funding. Tell them that things should be funded.
3: And, so. and
2: fundamentally, we want this to be a science-based and science-driven process because we know a lot from science about what species need. What we don't have is the resources and the political will to do it.
0: All right. So are, are there any parting thoughts that we want to impart on, on this 30 by 30 idea or process?
1: Well, just in the, at the national level, I don't know if you, maybe I missed this if you mentioned it, but the Biden administration came out with their report yesterday from the Department of Interior. So the federal 30 by 30 plan is now available online. So they identified six priority areas. And anyway, it's all, it's all there if folks want to check it out but
0: it's the beginnings of the plan. So again in the show notes on the com. <laughs> well friends, this was fun.
1: This got heated
0: at times. I <laughs> I, I I guess that we that we have nice. we have pretty strong feelings when it comes to these things. Who would have thought, right? I I Really enjoyed talking to all of you, and I hope that our listeners also enjoyed our conversation. Again, go to thelostcoastoutpost.com to find all the links to things that we talked about in today's show. And join us next week on the same time and channel for more environmental news from the north coast of California.